Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we ask for your continued mercy to us. Uh, mercy uh, that will convict us of the truth of your word. Uh, mercy uh, that will let your word keep doing its good work in our lives, helping us to trust Jesus and equipping us to live joyfully for him. And gracious Father, mercy, uh, so that I can speak uh, your word truthfully and clearly as I ought. Uh, we thank you that you are a good and merciful God. Give us understanding of your word and grace to change our thinking and practice to live by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, did your heart sink as you heard that reading? Uh, did you sense in yourself a reluctance this morning to engage with a reading about fiery ordeals and suffering? I sensed in myself as I prepared an emotional reluctance to talk about it. I mean, let's face it, it's summer. We're all trying to relax after a tough last few months, tough last year. We're all trying to put the anxiety of, about the future behind us and just steal some moments of carefree happiness. It is hardly the season for suffering. And there are probably more than seasonal reasons for our reluctance too. While no one likes suffering, more than most cultures, ours is focused on the present. We see no point in suffering and make present happiness ultimate. So suffering is a big turn-off. Our reluctance to engage with questions of suffering is deep-seated. And recognising that this morning is all the more reason to engage. As God tells us in 1 Peter 4 that the suffering of believers for Jesus' sake is unsurprising and a cause of joy. And if we won't hear that, then our thinking about the Christian life will be distorted, we'll be unprepared to persevere in living the life of trusting and obeying Jesus to the end, and we'll be ill-equipped to love our not-yet-believing neighbours by bearing witness in our culture that denies any purpose to suffering that there's actually an alternate truth to their truth, a truth in which loyalty to Jesus is worth suffering for. And if you're not yet a believer, just listening in, will recognise that what you hear in 1 Peter about suffering is actually a direct challenge to one of the pillars of the secular worldview embraced by so many Australians. This view that this life is all there is and is just to be lived now for pleasure in the moment. Dear friends, don't be surprised by the fiery ordeal comes by the when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Now, what's Peter referring to when he talks of the fiery ideal that has come to test us? What does he have in mind? Yeah, see, some people think that he's talking about some future persecution more severe than what the believers in Asia Minor were experiencing already. And the CSB translation at the top there, when the fiery ordeal comes, can make it sound that way. On this view, he's riding on the principle that forewarned is forearmed to get them ready for something they have not yet but will soon experience. But as in the NIV translation, the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, Peter's actually 
talking about present, not future trials. He's talking of his hearer's present experience. He's referring to the suffering he's mentioned already in the letter, the various trials that have already caused them grief, the reality that they're being slandered by some as evildoers, the suffering for doing good of Christian slaves at the hands of crooked masters, the suffering for righteousness and doing good mentioned in chapter 3, the slander of those offended by believers no longer living their lifestyle. You see, Peter doesn't want his hearers or us to think that their present experience of suffering is surprising, unusual, not what they should have expected. And he speaks about it as a fiery ideal, not because it's more intense, but because this is the language of refining that he's already used in chapter 1 to speak of the purpose of the trials which have come, that have come so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, as gold is refined in the fire, so their faith is refined, proved genuine by trials. And this language of refining by fire itself is drawn from Malachi to describe the effect of the coming of the Lord, the messenger of the covenant, who will be like a refiner's fire, who will be like a refiner and purifier of silver and purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. You see, by this language of fiery ordeal, Peter's already reminding us that their suffering is purposeful, proving the genuineness of their faith. Oh, and he's also hinting at its place in God's great saving purpose and plan for the end, an idea he will return to and develop in verses 17 to 18. Now, this understanding of the fiery ordeal as present suffering that they're already undergoing for being believers in Jesus is actually what we see in verses 13 to 16. There Peter makes clear what this suffering isn't and what it is. So let's start with what it isn't. He makes clear in verse 15, let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief or an evildoer or a meddler, that this fiery ordeal that tests is not suffering for doing wrong, justly deserved suffering. Let's pause a bit over this point. You see, it's unlikely that any of the congregation Peter was writing to were murderers or thieves. But mentioning these crimes makes his point clear. There are things that deserve punishment and people who do them can't complain or think that they're hard done by when punished, things that are completely inconsistent with following Jesus. And then Peter generalises the point by speaking of evildoers. And now evildoer is a general and comprehensive term for doing wrong. And so he's saying you shouldn't be suffering for doing any kind of wrong. But with the last term, meddler, he's inviting the congregation, us, to apply what he's saying to themselves and their own present suffering. You see, a meddler is someone who uninvited and unwelcomed interferes in the lives of others. And sadly, Christians convinced that we have truth and right, can indulge in that. A meddler can be someone who censures the behaviour of others unasked 
often outsiders to the church on the basis of a claim to their higher morality, or someone who interferes with family relationships, of course, in the name of promoting Christian obedience, or sows discontent and discord amongst people. Meddlers deservedly provoke a hostile response. Yet often when we're behaving in ways that others would identify if we listen to them as meddling, we can deceive ourselves that the wrong we're doing is actually good, that we've got the moral high ground. Including meddler is asking us to think about whether the suffering, the hard times we're experiencing, is really caused only by our being Christian or whether our behaviour has rightly earned the condemnation of others. But if that deserved suffering is not what Peter includes in the fiery ordeal, what does he have in mind? Well, firstly, verse 13, a suffering that is sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. Sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Now, of course, there's a uniqueness to Christ's suffering. Peter isn't suggesting that our suffering is in any way atoning, in any way deals with sin. But Christ's suffering for doing good, as Peter's already said, is an example left for us to follow. He says to those slaves, when you do good, what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favour with God, for you were called to this. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Christ suffering for doing God the Father's will at the hands of a humanity that rejects God's rule is the example of suffering for doing good all believers are to follow. And we share in Christ's suffering when, like Christ, we suffer for being obedient to God. Now that means we share in Christ's suffering when we suffer in the world that's rejected the Lord Jesus for faithfulness to the Lord Jesus. For God the Father's will is that we should believe in and obey his Son, his appointed King, the Lord Jesus, in all that he has commanded us. This is the good he calls us and everyone to do. When we suffer for following Christ, for being faithful to Christ in our confession and living, we share in Christ's suffering by suffering like Christ for doing what is good, experiencing what he experienced in the world for his faithfulness to God his Father. The fiery ideal ordeal is the suffering believers experience in this world for faithfulness to Christ. And verses 14 and 16 reinforce this understanding. Verse 14 speaks of being ridiculed for the name of Christ, that is, on the basis of our commitment to Jesus that identifies ourselves with him. And verse 16 speaks of suffering as a Christian for being a follower of Jesus, a Jesus loyalist. Now, Christian's a name we're used to, but it was first used of believers in Jesus in Antioch by those outside the church to make fun of the absurdity of believing that a crucified Jew was Lord, follower of Christ. But Christians accepted that, glad to be known as being loyal to the crucified one. 
Now, suffering as a Christian could involve, as we see in Acts, both official and unofficial persecution, the actions of local authorities or local mobs. In Acts, we see the local authorities harassing and imprisoning disciples in Jerusalem, killing James, arresting and flogging Paul and Silas in Philippi. And we see the mob stoning Paul in Lystra, attacking Jason's house in Thessalonica, rioting in Ephesus. So the fiery ordeal is the present suffering believers encounter for being faithful to Jesus, suffering for doing good in obedience to Jesus. And as we see in Acts and Revelation, its expression can vary from verbal abuse and insult to mob violence, from the destruction or loss of property to the actions of local authorities putting believers in jail, harassing and intimidating them right up to putting believers to death. But though varying from time to time and place to place, suffering is what believers experience throughout the world and throughout this age, including today. As Peter reminds his readers, the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. And Peter says they and we should not be surprised at this. But at first, it actually is surprising, isn't it? I mean, after all, Peter has spoken of believers as immensely privileged, God's own people, citizens of heaven. Isn't it surprising when the loyal citizens of a nation don't receive protection from their powerful ruler? Oh, and Peter has spoken of believers as a spiritual house, a kind of new temple, and we know that the temple was precious to God. Isn't it surprising when God lets what is precious to him be mistreated? And believers, we've we've been told, call on God as Father. Isn't it surprising when God lets his children suffer unjustly? Why shouldn't they and we think this suffering in the world is unusual? Think of it even as a contradiction of what we're promised in the gospel. Well, the answer, and again, Sunday school comes to the rescue again. The answer, of course, to that question is Jesus. Jesus' experience and Jesus' teaching. As Peter has reminded us throughout the letter, and even here in verse 13, Jesus himself suffered. He suffered to do God's will. Remember what Peter wrote in chapter 3, Christ also suffered for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit. See, that suffering of Christ wasn't purposeless because through that suffering he saved us and came to glory. Suffering for doing good was the way God fulfilled his good purposes for his Son exalting him to the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers subjected to him. You see, suffering wasn't a denial of Jesus' sonship, but the expression of it. And his unjust suffering wasn't the denial of God's justice, but the establishment of it, not the contradiction of God's promises, but the fulfilment of God's promises concerning his son to Jesus. (coughs) Now, why should we, believers... Think that our suffering will be any less instrumental in expressing our sonship and fulfilling God's promises for us. And why? 
And why should we think that we should be any better treated by the world that's in rebellion against God than our master was? Remember, Jesus taught explicitly that his followers would suffer because they are his followers, identified with him. John 15, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you're of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember what I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name. Jesus, you see, tells his followers that as he was, so we will be in this world. Jesus suffered and taught his followers they would suffer. And what Jesus taught has been proved throughout history, proved and true throughout history. You see, suffering for Christ may vary in intensity and expression from place to place and time to time, but it has always been there, even in Australia. You may not know this, but Richard Johnson, the first Christian clergyman in the colony, met official harassment from the Lieutenant Governor who delayed construction of a church that he'd been promised and limited church services. Or two early Christian missionaries to Aborigines, William Watson and Johan Hant in the 1830s, came into direct conflict with the settlers when they opposed their sexual abuse of young Aboriginal girls. We shouldn't think it unusual, be surprised by suffering. But despite the example and the clear teaching of Jesus, we, believers in the West, find ourselves surprised by the renewed prospect of suffering for following Jesus in our society. Now, whether that's because of our own entitled background or our numbers or our understanding of the historical contribution of Christianity to Australia, or whether it's because we've been deceived by the false teaching that actually Christianity is your path to personal fulfilment and a guarantor of your wealth or happiness, believers in the West, like us, tend to think things are not as they should be when we meet opposition, when we're slandered or excluded or face legal harassment for faithfulness, say, to Scripture's views on gender and sexual expression. We tend to think things are not as should be. We are determined, in fact, to think that suffering is unusual and its prospect unsettles us. And the day-by-day misrepresentation and criticism we meet in the media or the open contempt and determination to remove Christian faith and ideas from public life gets us down, erodes our confidence, makes us anxious or fearful about the future or even provokes anger and hostility. But instead of being surprised, thinking such hostility says out of place an anomaly, we should expect to suffer for doing good, to share in Christ's suffering by being faithful to Christ. And we should see our sharing in Christ's suffering the way our good God teaches us to see it here, as a cause of joy, a sign of present blessedness, and an opportunity to honour God. <coughs> Instead, writes Peter, rejoice 
as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. Believers are to respond to suffering for Christ with joy for our suffering shows we actually belong to Jesus, that we are his in the world and so share his experience in the world. In fact, Peter calls us to rejoice because it's only those who are glad to follow Jesus, even if it means suffering, glad to follow him because they're convinced he's Lord, convinced of his love and might and faithfulness. Only those who are rejoicing in suffering for Christ as a sign of belonging to him who will be exultantly joyful when the Saviour is revealed as he will be, no longer despised and rejected, but the glorious Lord. Present suffering, God says, is a cause for joy. And we're to respond by reckoning ourselves blessed. If you're ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now, to be blessed is to be the one who enjoys God's favour in God's world. It's the person whose position is enviable, the person everyone should want to be. For God's favour is life and peace. But no one enjoys being ridiculed and made fun of. So why, when that happens, should we reckon we are blessed? Well, it's because being ridiculed for being identified with Jesus shows, says Peter, that the spirit of glory and of God rests on you and that really is to be blessed because this spirit is the spirit of Christ, the spirit who will raise his people to life to share in Christ's glory, the same spirit that cries, Abba, Father, in our hearts, assuring us we are God's loved children. To have the spirit is to be blessed. We're blessed for our suffering shows we are God's children who will share in the glory of God's Son. And thirdly, in our suffering, we are to see an opportunity to honour God as we resist shame. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. Now, what does speaking ill of people, condemning them as wrongdoers, public abuse. What's that meant to do? Well, it's meant to shame people, isn't it? Shame them into conformity with the social norm. And shame is a powerful internal emotional drive of behaviour. The persecution of Christians for being Christian, whether it's criticism from family, friends, workplaces or the punishments of the state, is meant to shame people into conformity with the world that rejects Christ. And that persecution can make us feel ashamed because before we became believers, we shared all the values of our persecutors, had been brought up with them, had internalised them. You know, values like you must put family loyalty before everything else. Oh, you can't betray the community or the family by not worshipping the community's gods or this life is all there is to be lived for pleasure or only an irrational fool or a weakling would believe in God. You know those kind of values. But to give way under the pressure of suffering, to give way to shame is to accept an unbeliever's values and assessment of Christ, to accept their verdict on him and his commands, though they never know him. 
Instead of being ashamed, we're to glorify God in having that name. We're to bring honour to God by being loyal to Jesus in our suffering. You see, our continuing faithfulness to Jesus honours God by saying that his verdict on Jesus, his assessment of Jesus seen in raising him from the dead is right, even if all the world denies it. Continuing faithfulness to Jesus honours God by obeying the one God says he has made Lord and Christ whom he commands all to obey. Our continuing faithfulness to Jesus honours God because it keeps on saying that the Son of God will do all that is promised to raise us from the dead even if they kill us, to bring us to share in his glory even if they humiliate us. Where we are taught by God, we see that the fiery ordeal, sharing in Christ's suffering in this world because we follow his example of trusting obedience to God by remaining faithful to him. We see the fiery ordeal is not a reason to doubt or to be fearful or to be angry and resentful. It's actually a cause of joy, a sign of blessing, an opportunity to glorify God. And you might be sitting there and thinking, that's easy to say now as we sit here together, but why should I accept God's assessment when I'm feeling the pain of being excluded, ridiculed, being legally harassed, having my livelihood threatened or my reputation trashed? Why should I accept God's assessment? Well, only by believing the gospel and remembering what it says. Remembering that the one for whom we suffer, the Lord Jesus, who is our example, is our example of suffering for doing good. Remembering that that suffering came from his love for us and that in his suffering he's actually saved us, given us life. Or remembering his might, that having suffered he rose with all powers and authorities subjected to him. And then knowing his love and might, remembering the graciousness and certainty of his promise that he will forgive us and raise us up to eternal life. We accept God's assessment by remembering his gospel and then knowing the work of his spirit, assuring us of God's love, assuring us that God is our father, assuring us of our eternal inheritance. And our trust in God's assessment will then also be helped by understanding how the unsurprising experience of believers, the experience of the fiery ordeal that's come to test you to refine and prove the genuineness of your faith, fits in God's plan. For the time has come, writes Peter, for judgment to begin with God's household and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who disobey the gospel of God? Now when reading these verses, it's worth remembering that judgment here is not condemnation. It's actually the activity of the judge. And God's household can also mean God's house. It's a way of talking about the temple. See, Peter is saying that in these last days, the time when the end is near, the judge, God, begins the winding up of everything by acting to purify his house, his temple, which in the New Testament is his people. You see, Peter is applying that prophecy we've heard from Malachi 3, a prophecy which speaks of the Lord, verse 3, coming to purify his people. 
like a refiner's fire. And so restoring, verse 4, the integrity of the covenant and the genuineness of their worship. They will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will please the Lord. And then finally, he will come after that to judge his enemies. I will come to you in judgment and I will be ready to witness against those who do not fear me. See, by this reference to the order of God's action revealed in Malachi, Peter is making two points. Firstly and again, that the suffering of God's people is purposeful. It's the means by which the genuineness of their faith is proven, by which they honour God, give God true worship and are equipped to live with him in the new heaven and earth. And secondly, that the continuing suffering of believers in Jesus is not an accident or oversight, but part of God's plan for the end something that both precedes and warns of the final judgment. You see, it says in Malachi that after the refining of his people, God will act in judgment against all those who continue to defy him. And so just as our suffering should not surprise us, we should also see that in God's plan, the suffering, the world, that is, those who reject God's King Jesus by not obeying the gospel summons to repent and believe, the suffering the world imposes on his people is a sign not of the world's victory or power, but of its coming condemnation. And Peter and Peter reinforces his point that the suffering of the believers shows the dangerous position unbelievers are in by quoting Psalm 11.31 from the Greek Bible. If a righteous person is saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, with difficulty is not saying it is difficult for God to save us. No, it's an observation about the trials God's people face as they journey to their goal, the new heaven and earth. And it's an observation that reminds us that salvation requires perseverance, perseverance under trial. Now, we tend to forget this and sometimes can think about being saved by Jesus in the same way we think about buying insurance, you know, something that keeps us safe if we remember the annual instalments. You don't want to forget those annual instalments, right? But Jesus has always been up front about the difficulty, about the demand for wholehearted, persevering commitment that will cost In calling people to be his disciples, he said, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. It has always been give up all life itself to follow and keep on following Jesus. And Paul, speaking to those who first believed through his missionary journey, reminded them it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. We need to hear that. And Peter's point in reminding his hearers of this is that there is no hope outside the faith in the Lord Jesus that perseveres through trials. Oh, yes, and that if God's holiness requires his people to have genuine, proven faith to be saved, there is absolutely no hope 
for those who persevere in rebelling against God. Having told us that the fiery ordeal, the suffering for being faithful to Jesus that believers are experiencing is not unusual, but a cause of joy, a sign of blessing, an opportunity to glorify God. Having told us that it's a sign that God is carrying out his stated purpose to have a purified people for himself, which precedes and makes certain the judgment of those who don't obey the gospel, Peter concludes by saying that this time, a time when we face suffering for doing good, is not a time to rethink, but a time for perseverance. So then, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator and continue to do good, as the NIV says, or in doing good. Those who suffer according to God's will. That is, those who suffer like Jesus, for doing the good God calls them to do, the good he calls us all to do, of obeying God by believing in and obeying Jesus. Those who suffer according to God's will are now to keep living like Jesus by entrusting their lives to God in or by continuing to do the good that has brought this suffering on them in the first place. That's right. You see, the Lord Jesus, having said to God in the garden, not my will but yours be done, didn't come down from the cross as his persecutors demanded. He stayed there, suffering to keep on doing God's will. And he entrusted his soul, his life to God, Father, into your hands, he cried, I entrust my spirit. In the same way, Jesus' followers don't give up doing God's will when they suffer for it. They entrust their lives to the God they've come to trust in trusting Jesus, our faithful creator, the living God who always keeps his word, who raised his son from the dead, who exalted him over all as he promised, the creator who is almighty without rival or competitor in the whole creation, the creator who has the power of life in himself, who can bring all that is from nothing by his word, who can give life to the dead, the faithful creator who alone deserves to be entrusted with our lives for he alone can return that life to us and will as he has promised. And we show that we've entrusted our lives to our faithful creator by keeping on doing good, keeping on pursuing his will for us, even if it means suffering, by keeping on being willing to suffer for doing good. Being faithful to Jesus in our confession of him as Lord, living the holy, godly lives of God's children, speaking to all of the hope we have in Christ, a hope we testify to by our suffering with joy. For that suffering is not a sign that we are losers, should give up, that God's failed us. It's actually, we know, his means to equip us for glory, to share in the glory of his true son, the sign that we are, the, that we are blessed with the spirit of God and our opportunity to do what God's children delight to do, bring him glory by continuing to trust him. Well, as a society, and even as Christians in the West, we don't like thinking about suffering. But living in a world that rejects its creator, 
knowing that God's purpose is that he has a people who honour him by their genuine, proven, persevering trust in him, knowing that we follow a saviour who gave us an example of suffering for doing good and that the saviour who has saved us and triumphed is the saviour who saved through his faithful, obedient suffering, we should reckon on suffering for being faithful to the Lord. Lord Jesus, that should be something we expect and trust God for. And we should be equipped to persevere in it by thinking of it as God teaches us to think about it here. A cause of joy that we can share in the sufferings of Christ and through them be assured we will share in his glory. A sign of the blessedness of being God's children, having God's spirit and not a cause for shame but an opportunity to glorify our Heavenly Father. When you meet opposition for your faith, when you encounter ridicule for believing in Jesus, even if it's second-hand as you're listening to the mediator, the media, is that how you are responding? Not surprised, but joyful. If that's not, maybe you need to change your mind. Hear God. And reckon that the God who gave his son for you knows what is best for you, knows best how to care for you and knows best how to bring glory to himself, the glory that will bring others to trust his son, knows best how to bring glory to himself through your life as you keep on trusting his son, Jesus. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, suffering's hard to think about and it's hard to endure. But we pray that you would give us such a trust in your Son, the Lord Jesus, who suffered the righteous for the unrighteous and has been exalted over all rulers and powers and authority. We pray that you would give us such a trust in him, in his love and faithfulness that we would rejoice to suffer for him, to share in his sufferings in this world by persevering in doing the good he commands us to do. And we pray that doing that, we would know ourselves to be blessed with your spirit and we would be thankful for opportunities to give you honour and glory as you deserve. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.